We're gonna be at the end of John 12, 35 through the end of the chapter. And here at the end of, of this section is the, is the end of Jesus's public ministry in the Gospel of John. His public ministry after this section is over. It is drawn to a close. Now, if you wanted to sort of compile the most spectacular of all of Jesus's public miracles, that's like compiling a greatest hits album for the Beatles, right? It's like, it's like where do you start? You start with Hey Jude. Hey, just remember that, you start with Hey Jude. But where do you start with Jesus? There's, there's so many, it's hard to name them all. And, and you've preached through this gospel so you know Jesus turned water into wine, he raised a dead man Lazarus, he fed 5,000, a man born blind, a paralytic 38 years who was, who was healed. And John has recorded all of these things for us, not for the sake of entertainment, nor to display a, 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 just a kind of a naked power, uh, a, some sort of spectacle, a circus that we marvel at. As you know, John has one overarching purpose in his gospel, and it's found in John 20, 31, and it's simply this. I have written these things to you so that you may believe in Jesus Christ. That's John's sole purpose in this gospel, that you and I would see this man, that we would know him, that we would trust him, that we would turn to him. But that time for the Jewish people publicly is now drawing to a close, and there is a massive shift in the Gospel of John from this point forward. See, John's public ministry is over. His private ministry to his disciples only, only begins. The next time, though, we see Jesus publicly, he's standing trial before Pontius Pilate. And here, his last parting words, his parting plea to the people of the nation of Israel, the last time he will address them publicly, what will he say to them? What would, what would you say, parents, if you knew this was going to be the last time you saw your children? or you were going away for a very long time, what, what would you value, what would you say, what kind of plea would you make to them and for them? And that's the context, and it's where we are in John 12. And so we're gonna begin at verse 35 down through verse 50. So let me read God's word. So Jesus said to them, the light, among you, the light is among you for a little while longer, Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, in turn, and I would heal them. 
Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees him who sent me, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but through Father who has sent me, has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are just as desperate as the original hearers of this final plea. We need spiritual insight. We need you to remove the blinders. We need you to reveal your glory to us, to help us see you as you truly are. Lord, I can't do that. Jeff can't do that. The elders can't do that. None of us can do that. We can't do it for our kids. We can't do it for our families. Only you, sovereign God, through the work of your Holy Spirit can come and make this word come alive in our hearts. So Lord, whether we've been a Christian for 50 years, a Christian for one day, or, don't, or never been to church, maybe this is the first time, we pray, Lord, that you would have something to say to each and every one of us today, wherever we are, we ask these things in your son's name, amen. I've entitled this message, A Parting Plea for Biblical Faith. A Parting Plea for Biblical Faith. And I see four sorts of movements through the text. And it was so kind of John to alliterate them for us. They all start with P. Isn't that kind, the way John does that? So, so there's a pronouncement. There is a prophetic word. There is a profession, in quotes, and then there is a, a plea. Let's look first at the pronouncement, verse 35. John says, the, Jesus says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, and while you have the light, believe in the light. You know, if you're familiar with John's gospel, and it seems like many of you are, you know that John uses a lot of different metaphors for believing. And this is something I really super duper appreciate about John. And parents, I think this is so helpful in helping our, our kids understand what biblical faith is and isn't. But think of all the metaphors John uses for believing. He says, you know, believing is like drinking. Believing is like eating. Believing is like seeing. Believing is like entering and many more. And here he compares believing to walking. And John says, walk while you have the light. In other words, turn and trust Jesus while you still have time because the window for responding in faith to Jesus is short and temporary. 
you know, we're under the illusion as a culture that somehow we are going to live indefinitely, or at least we live our lives in that way. We, we, we're, we're consumed with things we put in our body or not put in our body, exercise, eating, um, natural, organic. Um, I, I go, I, I'm not gluten-free, I go gluten-infested. So the more, the more gluten, the better. And all that is fine in its own context, but we can't be deceived, we have to know our window for responding in faith is short and temporary. Even if we live a full life, 80, 90 years, that is such, it's a vapor, it's a short amount of time. And to sort of emphasize this point, John tells us in verse 36, and this is kind of Jesus' drop the mic moment, look at verse 36. He says, when there, he says, when Jesus has said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It's this, it's this picture John is drawing for us that Jesus has been there every single day for three years. He has been pleading with the lost sheep of Israel. He's been doing miracles. He's been healing. He's been teaching. He's been commanding. He's been laying his, laying his life down. He's been serving. And then just like that, no one got up that morning knowing that this was gonna be the last time Jesus appeared publicly. It's his last time. In fact, it tells us in the other Gospels that this, is, this was probably happening on a Wednesday. Thursday, people were looking for him in the temple, but guess what? They could not find them because the window of opportunity had closed. Some of you may have seen the movie Everest. It's based upon, uh, it's a true story based upon the book by John Krakauer called Into Thin Air. And it's the true story of the catastrophe that, that, that took place on Mount Everest when eight people died in a, within the span of a few hours attempting to summit Mount Everest. Now you need to know that in the history of, of mountain climbing, about 4,000 people have succeeded in summiting Everest, but there's been about 280 deaths. That's about a 6.5% chance that you'll die if you go to Everest. And so if any of you are thinking of that, Think, think again, okay? There's better things to lay your life down for. But the vast majority of these people who die, die in what is called the death zone. That is the, the area of the mountain from 26,000 feet to 29,000 feet. And it's in this area that literally the body begins to die. It begins to shut down. In fact, if you're in that death zone for longer than 48 hours, you are toast. And so what happens is the, the body literally, there's less oxygen to breathe, and so extreme fatigue, loss of coordination, confusion, lack of judgment. Um, there, there's something that happens called high altitude cerebral edema. I have no idea what that is, but it sounds bad, okay? So, so there's all this stuff that's going on that's freezing temperatures, there's winds, the point is, there is the most narrow of windows to summit. When you get to a certain point, you've got to go in and up, got to get on that trailhead at 3 a.m., and you've got to get back down off those high altitudes. And this story is what happens when this group is delayed, getting off because of this storm, but because of all these other pressures, you, you have to read the book or see the movie, these, this, this competition that's sort of happening between these different groups, they, they didn't want to walk away, but they, 
went anyway, and they waited too long, and they missed their window of opportunity. Not to sound overly dramatic this morning, but this is Jesus' word to us. Do you know that we are all living in the death zone, spiritually speaking? By that, we have been given in this life a very narrow opportunity for faith. Some of you, you've been doing the church thing for a long time, but, but you know there's no reality there for you in your heart. Maybe you've had the attitude of, there'll be some other time and some other place, I'll get my life right, I'll clean up the things that need to be cleaned up, but for right now, I'm content with what I'm doing. I don't want the claims of Christ making any sort of, staking any sort of claim or territory in my heart. If that is you, that's a spiritually perilous position. Some of you, this also applies to, to Christians. If you're a Christian, maybe God is putting some sort of window of opportunity or opportunity for obedience in front of you and is calling you to it. Maybe there's some sort of relationship as we go through this letting go material tonight. Maybe there'll be some sort of relationship you feel God pressing you to reconcile. Maybe there's some sin, some hidden sin that God is calling you to repent of. Maybe there's this closing window of opportunity with your children or with your marriage. There's just something in your life that God, you know God is calling you to make right. You know, we see this in the life of the Apostle Paul, by the way. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul is about to die, and it's, it's just before winter, and he gives his last words to Timothy, and he says, Timothy, come to me before winter and bring my cloak and bring the parchments, bring Luke, bring Mark. Fascinating what was going on there. Maybe Paul was compiling portions of the New Testament and pulling all these things together. Whatever the case, this was urgent. And he said, Timothy, you better come before winter. Why did Paul say that? Because Timothy, if you delay, you won't be able to travel and I could very well be dead. What is the window of obedience and opportunity that God has set before you today, that he's calling you to, to run after in obedience today, to turn to him today. This reminds me, when, when is the easiest time? I, 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 just, I, I vowed not to diet while I was here, and I'm, I'm glad I didn't. When is the easiest time to start a diet, always? Tomorrow, right? We'll start that tomorrow. But when is the best time to start a diet? Certainly not after lunch. Jeff's taking me to this cool Greek place, and so, so it's not gonna happen there, right? There's no better time than today. Listen to the voice of Christ. Hebrews 3.15 says this. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. That's Jesus's pronouncement. Secondly, he follows with a prophetic word. Look at verse 37. And this is just confounding, it's, it's, it's hard to believe. Verse 37, despite the many signs, what does it say, what does John tell us? They still did not believe. Overwhelming evidence, right? Miracles, the words of Jesus, the acts of Jesus, 
Judas is a part of this crew at this point in time. He's had a front row seat. It's exasperating when you think about it. Don't we all know of situations in our own life where we are so desperately trying to get across some important truth, some information to our, to our child or to our spouse or someone we're working with about some sort of perilous course that they are on, we feel like we're having to resort to the back to the future model of ministry. Remember, hello, McFly. I mean, like, wake up. I mean, what are, what are you doing? And again, it's a reminder. It's a reminder. Unbelief is very powerful. Unbelief is utterly confounding. Uh, unbelief, as John has shown us again and again in his gospel, distorts the very way that we see reality. It distorts the way we see God. It distorts the way that we see ourselves. And it leads us into a very perilous position. I was having a convo with some of, some of your elders on the way back from the retreat yesterday, and, and I told them about this illustration that I was gonna share this morning, and they were like, oh yeah, we, we've, we've heard that a thousand times. But anyway, we're, gonna, we're going with it anyway. I'm realizing as I'm about to share this that all of my illustrations deal with mountains and death. So anyway, just, just heads up. Harry Truman, you've heard of him, right? Not the former president. We're talking about the homeowner at the foot of Mount St. Helens, right? Just a couple of hours from here. Yeah, Harry Truman, 1980. Of course, you know, you, you live here. And I remember in 1980, being in Tennessee and having Mount St. Helens erupt and seeing the, the, the purple sunsets and, the, and, the, and the, golden, the golden hue and aura about the clouds, even from several thousand miles away. But, but apparently they, they told Mr. Truman, there is virtually, Mr. Truman, 100% chance that this volcano is gonna erupt. And not only is there 100% chance it's gonna erupt, there's 100% chance the lava is gonna flow right over the top of your house. So he was facing almost certain death, but if you know the story, you know he refused to believe. You know that government officials came and implored him to leave. Do you remember this on the news? Friends warned him. Can you imagine his family members? His family members begged him to leave lest he die and destroy their inheritance in the process, right? So they're, they're begging him. But on March, on May 18th, May 18th 1980, the eruption took place. The lava flowed right in the projected path of Truman's home. On May 18th, Harry Randall Truman died. Stubborn to the end, unable to face reality. And it's just confounding. And yes, that's the nature of sin and spiritual blindness. And, and this is what has befallen the people of Israel. And John quotes, Isaiah 53, one. Now, we're used to, to quoting Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant when? At Christmas, right? But in reality, do you know this is actually a prophecy of judgment? And this episode is the fulfillment of that prophecy. It says, he was despised and rejected by men. We esteemed him not. Now, that's, that's bad. That's bad enough. We, they, despite the overwhelming evidence, they, they would not believe. But then John takes us a step further, and I want you to follow the sequence that happens in this text. Because this is, 
This is a word of, of warning for us, a gospel warning, but a warning nonetheless. They would not believe, so in turn, they could not believe. Look at verse 39 and 40. And John is again quoting Isaiah. Therefore they, what? Could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And let's be honest, those are not easy words to our postmodern ears, are they? God hardening hearts? God blinding people? God, God making it that we cannot see? And so before we rush past this, we need to understand what it is that John and Isaiah are saying and what they're not saying. Let me start with what John and Isaiah are not saying. They're not saying that, you know, God just sort of arbitrarily comes down to earth and all of us are doing super duper. We're worshiping God, our kids are being obedient, husbands are loving their wives and wives are loving their husbands and everything is going well and we're running hard after God and God sort of arbitrarily goes around and says, no belief for you, no grace for you, no forgiveness for you. No, 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 that, that, that's not what's happening here. Remember that Jesus has been front and center for three years every single day pleading with the people to turn. God has sent his son to a people who were already not believing, who were already lost. And so he's pleading with them through this son to hear the good news. But as we see in this passage, they just double down on their unbelief. So God in turn imposes a judicial sentence. It says that he just leaves them alone. You see that? He just gives them over to their own sin and hardness of heart. He stops bugging them with his Holy Spirit. He passes over. He doesn't do anything to them that was not already done. But what he does is closes the door of opportunity. And by the way, if that sort of language scares you, if you say, Pastor Paul, that, that really sounds like you're saying, man, that Christians ought to be warned and, and, and you know, my goodness, it seems like you could lose your salvation. Just, just stay with me for a minute. Listen to Hebrews 10 though. We do see these words of warning all over the Bible, and they're important. Hebrews 10, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. See, the writer of Hebrews is not saying that people lose their salvation. That's not, what, that's not what's being said here. These are folks, and maybe we know some, they've been exposed to the truth. They've grown up in church their whole life. They've, they've had sort of a, a veneer of spirituality. They've, they've, they've seemed on the surface to have some sort of response to the gospel, but they don't count the cost. They end up falling away. Some of you are coming here tonight with, folks on your heart and mind that have fallen away 
And sometimes it just says God passes over. He just gives them over to the hardness of their heart. Christian, that's why it's so important not to quench the spirit, not to refuse to hear the voice of God. And you may say, Pastor Paul, I have to admit this morning, I haven't been listening. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe as, as we're working through this text, you're thinking about, man, I, I've really hardened my heart in this area. Or I've really stopped listening to God in this particular thing. And you may say, is, is, is there a way back? And the answer to that is, of course. How? By listening to Jesus Christ today. If you are here today and God has pricked your conscience, you are feeling uneasy, there is a conviction in your soul, there, there is a, there, there, there's, a, there's a worry, there's a care, there's a struggling, do you not see that God's Holy Spirit is wooing you? God is speaking to you, God is prodding you, God has not passed over. The person I'm most concerned about, and I say this to people in our church all the time, is when people stop struggling. See, that's, that's a dangerous place. See, struggle is a sign that God's Holy Spirit is alive, a well, working, convicting. And when we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling, we're, that, that's a hard process. You know, we sometimes think about our quiet times as all sweetness and light, and we have our cup of coffee, and I saw your little outdoor seating area, and I'm gonna steal that outdoor seating area and bring it back, and your weather to Tallahassee. And we think about sweetness and light and but sometimes this is hard, isn't it? We struggle and we wrestle and we read God's word and we're praying and we're, God's trying to have his way in our heart. So yes, it's not too late. It's not by accident that you're here today. It's not, not by chance that you're hearing this passage in these words. This is Jesus's prophetic words. And he moves thirdly, to a profession, and I use this term in quotes because I don't think it's a real profession. I think what John is doing here and what he does all through his gospel, if you remember when Pastor Jeff was preaching through this, John is always keen to remind us about what true faith is and what it isn't. See, this is a big deal for people who live in the South, where I'm from, because there can be this idea that my my, my mama was a Christian, my daddy was a Christian, my grandparents are a Christian, I'm a Christian. You know, it's like hanging out in the garage doesn't make you a car, right? Okay, so hanging out in the church doesn't make you a Christian, but there's a thing like, oh, I believe, oh, Pastor Paul, absolutely I believe all that. I believe the Bible, I believe Jesus. Maybe that's not so much an issue here, but it's a good reminder what a profession of faith biblically is and is not. Look at verse 42. It says in verse 42 that many even of the authorities believed in him, which sounds good, right? Isn't that the goal? Isn't that why John is writing this, this gospel? But if you know from studying the gospel of John, you know John takes great pains to talk about the difference in biblical belief, capital B, and fake belief, lowercase b and why it's so important that we know the difference. We've seen this before in John's, in John's gospel. I, I take you back to chapter two. Let me read this passage and, and see how eerily 
similar it is to what we're reading today. Verse 23 of chapter two, now when he was in Jerusalem meeting Jesus at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, see, when they saw the signs that he was doing, there you go. But, but, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. In other words, he did not accept their overtures. Why? Because he knew all people. For he himself knew what was in man. He knew they were not there to worship him, to trust him, to follow him. They were there because of the fact they could attach themselves to his ministry and go to great places, do great things. Remember, um, in, in John 6, his brothers were begging him to go up to Jerusalem to show them himself. But what does John say? Not even his brothers believed in him. See, there is a shallow belief, there is a cursory belief that doesn't transform the heart. And when it says the leaders here believed, understand something, you can acknowledge just like they did that Jesus is from God, you can recognize the work of God, they did. I mean, they could, I mean Nicodemus, he couldn't refute it. It's clear you're from God, nobody raises people from the dead if he's not from God. But here's the significant difference. They didn't follow him in faith and repentance. See, they loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. It's a great reminder for us. Understand something, what I'm about to say. Faith is not less than intellectual knowledge or theological truth, it's not less than that. that, that that's a, a crucial, important part of faith. But faith is much more than mere intellectual knowledge. After all, what does James say? The demons believe that there is one God and what do they do? They shudder. See, faith is not just about acknowledging truths about God. Now, let, let, hear, hear me clearly. It's also acknowledging truths about yourself. It's acknowledging not only is Jesus Lord, but I'm not. I'm a broken person. I'm a sinful man, I'm a sinful woman. I make a mess of my life, my life is a mess. I can't save myself. I'm in need of mercy and grace and forgiveness. One of our, our well-known Southern writers, Flannery O'Connor said, the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. See, that's the sticking point. We can acknowledge intellectually, and all kinds of people do, even people in this text, but unless there's a fundamental recognition that I am going to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus, that's true biblical faith. See, when we turn from our sin, what we're saying, we're not earning our salvation, what we're saying is salvation is found in no other place. See, when we refuse to repent, what we're saying is, I know best, God. I, I know that you did not Surely you didn't make me marry this person in order to be unhappy, surely not. Surely, God, you did not do X, Y, and Z because of X, Y, and Z, surely not. No, faith is saying, I entrust myself to God. I fall upon his mercy and his grace. And Jesus, while the window is faith, 
of faith is still here, makes a final plea. This is gonna be our last point, let's look there. This section, if you look down at verse 47, or 44 actually, functions kind of like an epilogue here. So sometimes John rearranges some material to kind of extenuate something. This discourse is undoubtedly part of the same discourse that happens right before Jesus departs from them. But John sort of puts it here at the end to emphasize that Jesus is making a final, final, final plea. And Jesus says some interesting things here in these last verses. One, he says, I didn't come to judge. We may say, hmm, that's interesting. That fits right, right along with the postmodern, therapeutic, non-judging Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't come to judge. I came to save. Well, if you read John's gospel, remember John's gospel is, is, was written to be read at a sitting, heard at a sitting. John has already made it clear that Jesus did not come in the world to judge the world. Why? Because the world was already under judgment. He came to save the world. But see, he, just keep reading the text if you, if you wanna get clarity. Jesus says, I'm not your judge, but you do have a judge. Do you hear that? You have another judge. And that's the Father who judges through the word that I have spoken to you. See, Jesus came to a world that was already perishing. He has come to, to die and to save but make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, there is still a judgment. See, there is increasing pressure, even, and by the way, this pressure is not so much coming from our secular world, it's coming from within the church. There's an increasing pressure to give up on this idea of wrath being a, a, an important part of God's makeup. See, to see it, it's commonplace now. Wrath is incompatible with a, with a God of love. If you read the article in Christianity Today a few, few weeks ago, a well-known megachurch pastor in Atlanta, you would all recognize his name, stoked all sorts of controversy by making the plea that what we need to do as Christians to remain relevant in reaching our neighbors in a postmodern culture is to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, quote unquote. See, only the affluent and the protected have the luxury to cast off the uncomfortableness of God's wrath. See, only us Westerners who are comfortable and we're embarrassed by that sort of pagan talk and it just sounds so ritualistic and bloody sacrifices and just it's embarrassing. We just need to put that aside. That's not the way Christians and the rest of the world speak. Do you know why? Because they understand very, very well the reality that God has got to come back one day and make this right. That, that if, if God does not have the attribute of wrath, and, and, and wrath is nothing less than God's settled opposition to everything that's wrong. If, you, if, you, if you're someone who's, who's, who's big into social justice as we all should be as Christians, and you may say, I, I'm advocating for those who were caught in the sex slave trade. I'm advocating for the poor. I'm advocating for those discriminated against. Amen and amen. But apart from a God of justice, apart from a God of wrath, we have no basis to make those claims. John is reminding us, Jesus is reminding us, in fact, do you know that wrath lies at the heart of the gospel? 
See, John 3.36 as a reminder. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Ready? But the wrath of God remains on him. Because the wrath of God remains upon humanity. And ultimately, Scripture tells us that someone, someone bears the wrath of God when it comes to our own souls. It's either ourselves or it's Jesus. See, the, the, the real scandal in this passage is not that God is passing over and hardening hearts and all those sorts of things. The real scandal of this passage is God's patience. For, for, for three years, day in and day out, every opportunity to believe, he is forbearing with them. Think about God's patience with you. You are here today. Your window of faith is still open. Remember, our God is slow to anger, abounding in love. And where is that passage, by the way? In the Old Testament. But there is a plea to turn to me, to turn to Christ while there still is light, to do the hard work of obedience while it is still day, remembering, remembering, Edgewood Bible Church, that it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. His mercies are new every morning. They never come to an end as long as there is light. Follow the light, walk with the light while it is still day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are, this, is a, this is a hard passage. It's a tough passage. But Lord, it's a loving passage. This is love. We need to be reminded of that, of that day of impending doom and judgment. We need to be reminded that there will be many who will be saying on that day, peace, peace, and you will come suddenly like a thief in the night. So Lord, give us grace to absorb this. Lord, let it be the gospel of grace, the love and mercy of Jesus Christ, your forbearance, your patience, your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, you are slow to anger, but you are abounding in love. Lord, let it draw us to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.